does suffering come from? Do you ever spend time wondering about how you think about suffering? Welcome to Kingdom of the Logos. This is podcast number 52. I'm Pastor Jay Dylan Proctor, but I'm not alone here in Cord Purgatory. I also have with me Anthony Alegria. And today, Anthony and I are going to be exploring a few different things about our assumptions about the world. We're going to be talking about suffering and where does suffering originate. We're going to be doing that by examining Fyodor Dostoevsky's novel, Crime and Punishment. But before we get there, we're going to also have fun with our general knowledge segment where we examine saxophones and flutes and the question of what is a woodwind. But before we even get to those, I want us to start our program by talking about some general assumptions that our culture has in the world. We've comprised a list of just a few things in the world which our culture assumes, and these are some rather bad assumptions. Again, when there are bad ideas in the world, the answer is not to censor them or hide them from the public sphere, but instead we should come to the table with critical thinking. First and foremost, God is a God of reason and rationality, therefore we should also have our minds transformed. So let's get right into this list and talk about some bad assumptions that the world makes and give you some alternatives for a better place to start. Anthony, would you start with assumption number one? The world wants us to assume identity is demographics and not character or relation to God. All right, we find this all over the place, that when somebody asks you, who are you or what are you, they want to know your demographic stuff. They want to know what race you are, what gender. They try to even segment out gender and sex as different things. But I'll tell you this, here's a better starting point. Our identity is as children of God. If we have accepted the testimony of Christ into our lives, then we are Christians. And that is the identity that we should be concerned about. While there are differences between people, the one identity that's going to matter is, have we accepted the testimony of Christ? Yes or no? Let's go on to the next question. Anthony, what is assumption number two? Assumption number two is, love is subjective and not constant. All right, we find this all over the place. Love is whatever we want it to mean. In fact, if Anthony was going to make an assumption, you might as well just say the word love and leave it completely open-ended because our culture does not define love very well. But I want us to start from this point. Love is deliberate. It has a purpose. It has an aim. In fact, Christ's love, as we are called to model it, it has a goal. Christ's love is always transforming people. Yes, Christ is willing to meet people wherever they may be, but he is always moving people in a very specific direction. He's always moving people towards holiness. So when our world wants to put bumper stickers and things out there which just say the word love in some sort of ambiguous and undefined sense, we got to push back on that and say, no, love is actually not subjective. It's not ever what, it's not ever what we want it to mean in any given se- moment, in any given sentiment but it's something much beyond our our personal sentiments and our personal dispositions. It's something which can transcend us all. Next assumption, Anthony. God's law is random and arbitrary, not rational and orderly. This is an assumption we find all throughout our world. If you go and you watch a, a movie, Hollywood always starts from this starting point that God's law is random and arbitrary. A lot of people may even look at something like the Ten Commandments. They may look there and say, oh, well, you know, a lot of these make sense, but these first ones, you know, have no other gods before me. Don't take my name in vain. Don't make, you know, graven images. These are just random and arbitrary things. Well, in fact, actually, the laws of God are very meaningful. They're actually quite rational and and orderly. In fact, God is is well-defined as being a being of reason and rationality, and the call we have in our lives is to have our minds transformed. But... 
We come from a place where the world doesn't understand this. They don't even see the rationality behind the idea of have no other gods before me. A lot of people will take and they will turn God into government. They say, well, we'll reject God, therefore there will be no God in life. This is not the case. People will always find something to treat us if it is God. A lot of times they'll look up to the government. They'll say, oh, this is the, the arbiter of morality now. Governments are unreliable. Only make God God. Next assumption, Anthony. That disagreement of any degree means hate. We find this all throughout our world. People are trying to rebrand evil as hate, but they really aren't just rebranding evil. They're rebranding anything that they might perceive as evil as hate because they don't have a moral basis and understanding of what evil is. First off, disagreement does not actually mean hate, and arguments are not a bad thing. You'll actually find a lot of times people have disagreements because they love one another. Someone may come along and say, I want to rob a bank. And if you love that person, you may have a disagreement with them and say, that's not a good idea. Even if you're successful, you've done something rather criminal and bad. And if you're unsuccessful, you're going to be arrested and have a lot of consequences in life. And you may even be killed in the way that this falls out. Having disagreements is not hate. All right. The fifth assumption, Anthony. People are valued on power, authority, and money. All right, our world is always looking at everything around it and saying, well, this demographic, this identity is not represented in these things, and our assumption is that identity is found in demographics, and because the demographics aren't found in certain ways, then therefore they must be oppressed, prejudiced, all this stuff. If we actually have good assumptions, we'll know that first and foremost, people are children of God, and people are not valued based off of power, authority, and money. In fact, if you look at your own life, you'll probably find this is not true. You probably love your friends and family, not because of the money or power or authority they may have, but instead you love them because they are important to you. Their character, the content of their mind, their, their very being is important to you. People's character is very valuable. Our, our culture has largely worked to, to dissolve our understanding and appreciation for honor and reputation, but honor, reputation, shame, all of these are important aspects of life. And in fact, some of them you want, some of them you, you don't want. We should move back to a place where we assume that value is not based on power, money, and authority, but its value is, is connected to character. Well, we're going to move past this segment. We're going to go to our general knowledge segment where we examine what is a woodwind. Any final thoughts, Anthony, before we move on to our next segment? Yeah, um, something that I thought was really a really good touch was to add um, that God's law was arbitrary as an assumption because that's often something that I find to be kind of like an argument against um, people who are trying to say that sinful behavior is wrong. Uh, a lot of times, you know, you can go and you can confront someone about a sinful behavior, and a lot of times they'll try to make the argument that that, that only matters to you and it's not actually evil or wrong or something like that and maybe not necessarily evil because some things simple behavior like you know drunkenness or something like that some people are not being inherently evil by um adhering to drunkenness Which but they, they try to make it down like oh you're you're it's arbitrary it's like choosing between a a chocolate cupcake and a cupcake with strawberries inside of it it's an arbitrary difference yeah well, it's um, it's casting off, it's casting it off as a haughty preference. Yeah, you know, it's it's just your preference, and you're haughty, so obviously your preferences must be adhered to. But um, I think that it's really 
really important that Christians understand and non-Christians also understand that God's law and what is sin is not based on just arbitrary preferences oh, no. and what people and things like. It's actually based on objective um, observations over yeah, whether or not the behavior results in what's good. objective observations, but it's also things which are universally applicable. Like earlier, one of the things that people often say is arbitrary, the statement, you know, have no other gods before me, don't take my name in vain. These are actually very reasonable things to do. Because if you look to God and you understand what role God plays, God is the, the source of morality, it's the source of life, it's the source of meaning and purpose. And it's also the, the source of justice. If you remove God from that role and you start putting other things in that, you'll find the world gets unreliable. And this is a very, even a lot of atheist people will realize that this is true. Treating the government as if it is now the, the pure arbiter of justice is kind of an unreliable thing. In fact, if you treat the, the government as if it can arbitrate, you know, culture, that it will decide what is wrong, right and wrong, a lot of times this can be very unreliable. You'll find politicians being corrupt. They want to do things to their cronies that they wouldn't do to other people. They want to, to give positive things to certain people, negative things to certain people. Government is not without fault. It is not a transcendent moral thing. And there's a very practical fracture that comes when people treat things as God that are not God. Well, anyways, we'll leave that there, and we'll be back in a moment with our general knowledge segment on woodwinds. For our general knowledge segment today, we're going to be talking about woodwinds, and what is it that makes a woodwind a woodwind? You may see wind instruments, something like a, a trumpet or trombone, and see that that is made out of brass, and it is a brass instrument. But some instruments, they appear to be made out of brass or some other form of metal, but yet they're not actually a brass instrument. Today we're going to be talking about what actually makes a woodwind a woodwind. So today with us I have TJ and Abby, and why don't we just go ahead and do an introduction to the instruments you have. TJ, what instrument do you have with you today? I have a tenor saxophone. Abby, what do you have with you? I have a flute. And with me this morning, I have a soprano saxophone. And as we come to discuss what these instruments are, TJ, you would look at something like that. A saxophone is, is quite clearly, it's made out of brass, it's got lacquer on it. What is it that separates that from other instruments that are considered low brass? Again, sometimes you go to an orchestra and you see that they have a low brass section. That may or may not include saxophones. Saxophones are technically a woodwind. But what is it that differentiates a saxophone and a woodwind from something like a trombone or a trumpet? Well, for starters, they uh, have a wood reed, and they have instead of buzzing your lips, you blow through a reed. And along the saxophone is openings, and it's just one long tube with a bunch of openings that you close by pressing down keys. Versus a trombone, where it's a long slide, and all you do is you elongate a tube to change pitches. Versus, and then a trumpet and tuba or baritone, they have three valves that basically open different air passages throughout the instrument. All right, we have made it in here to our wonderful chalkboard, and we have a drawing here to explain a little bit about how a saxophone mouthpiece works. TJ, you have the saxophone mouthpiece here. What you'll notice, we have an enlarged, wonderful drawing. We have wonderful artists around here. This pink section is the black section, and this white line up under here is the reed. Now, how the reed works on a saxophone is as you are playing it, it will sort of vibrate up and down. 
you have sort of this up and down motion that the reed does slapping up against the mouthpiece, which allows it to make a bit of a noise. TJ, would you show us exactly how this works with your soprano saxophone? And that is how a saxophone mouthpiece works of the instrument. Abby, you have a flute over there. TJ mentioned a reed, mm -hmm. but your instrument does not have a reed at all. Could you explain to us a little bit how that, that works? My, my flute does not have a reed at all. It is solely dependent on how your airflow and your armature. Your armature is right here. So if you tighten it or you make it wider, you get different sounds. And now we're gonna have Abby talk with us a little bit about how a flute mouthpiece works. A flute mouthpiece works a lot like a bottle when you blow across the bottle. So in this diagram, you blow across right here and on a bottle you get a red, a dark resonant sound coming out of it, kind of like a hollow sound. On a flute, it's similar. You just have to hit at one certain point just like on a bottle. So you see I'm blowing right here across it. It's not overly on it, just right on the edge. Very interesting indeed. So one of the things we can take away that marks the difference between a woodwind and a brass instrument is woodwinds, they basically have a fixed length. Again, the length of this instrument does not change, but the keys on it, as they are depressed, you'll notice there are holes. There are a lot of holes on that saxophone you have there. And even if you'll notice on the flute, there are many holes that line the instrument. As the keys are pressed, holes open and they close. And again, that's how it stretches the, the sound out. On a brass instrument, you have valves or a slide which will elongate the actual length of the instrument. All right, I want us to look a little bit about why this instrument has holes across it and how these holes actually work. One thing that's really interesting about woodwinds is the pitch which you hear is largely determined by which holes are closed. However, the closing of the holes is not something which is random or disorderly. In fact, it's quite systematic and there's a very particular order to it. Generally speaking, the more holes are closed, that will be the pitch you hear. As you more holes close and go down the instrument, you will get a lower pitch. TJ, could you give us an example on the saxophone of starting from sort of a, a mid-tier note and closing more holes as the pitch goes down? Very good. And you'll notice the same thing happens on the flute. However, the flute and the saxophone as well, they have something about them which there may be a key up towards the top which opens and closes a few holes at the top which throws the pitch up a few octaves or something to that effect. What does it seem like when the, the flute plays and keys move? You'll see all of those fingers and things moving around. It may seem as if it is random, but it's actually quite orderly. It's quite a structured thing. And even with the soprano sax here, as you see it work. From more holes closed to less holes closed, the pitch goes up and down. Well, thank you both TJ and Abby for sharing your knowledge a little bit about woodwinds. And it's been great having you.
to be here. You're welcome. <laughs> We're going to discuss a very destructive idea. One that has emerged out of the 1800s in Russia and it's coming all the way to our modern world to cause a lot of chaos and destruction. Because in fact, words and ideas can be quite destructive, but possibly not in the way that you might think. We look at the world around us and there's a question that we all have. Where does suffering come from and why is there suffering? In fact, I bet there's a good chance that you have something in your life right now causing you stress and or some sort of suffering because suffering is something we find all throughout life. But the question is, where does it come from? What are our assumptions, what are our starting points within our mind about how we deal with suffering? We're gonna read a bit out of a Russian novel by Fyodor Dostoevsky called Crime and Punishment. Now, in this novel, Crime and Punishment, the main character is a guy named Raskolnikov. And yeah, that sounds a lot like the word rascal. And Raskolnikov, well, He's a bit of a rascal. He's somebody who doesn't really work. He has some skills that he could use, but he's in this weird limbo where he's trying to plot out some things in life. He's got some family drama going on, and he meets some interesting characters. And throughout the course of the novel, there's a lot of stories you hear about some interesting characters in his life. One of the characters that Raskolnikov, this rascal, meets is a guy named Marmolodov. Now, Marmolodov is actually a drunk that Raskolnikov meets in a bar. And basically, how the novel unfolds is, well, Raskolnikov just runs into people, he hears their story, and it sort of takes a break away from the main theme. But in doing so, it reveals some really important things about the human condition. Marmolodov is a drunk who has left his wife. And when I say left his wife, I mean he's actually run off from home. He does plan on going back home, but he's in a weird place where he just kind of goes off to himself in a bar to drink away the money that he has. Marmolodov has not only taken money from home, but he's also not working. His wife is under the impression that he kind of is working, though she knows that he's a bit of a, a drunk. And Marmolodov has left home taking the money that his wife has to feed the children. This is Marmolodov's second wife, and his new wife has come in with some children, and Marmolodov is exploiting the family and as well as his own daughter from an earlier marriage financially. He's not really working and he's taking the resources away from home that they need to live. Marmolodov runs into Raskolnikov in a bar and he just tells him all the woes of the world. He says, look, there's suffering. Again, back to our earlier theme, there's suffering in life. I have all the suffering in my life and you know what? I've caused it. I've taken advantage of all my family financially. My wife, she's from a, a better social standing than me, and now she's come down to my level, and life is quite miserable. After Marmolodov shares all of these woes with Raskolnikov, he realizes it's finally time for him to go home and deal with his wife. Again, one of the antidotes to some of the bad ideas in the world is understanding history. This novel takes place in the 1800s in Russia, and a lot of people may not be familiar with the history of Russia. In the 1800s in Russia, and going on into the 20th century, which is the 1900s, we find that a lot of people living in Russia and Eastern Europe, they live in these buildings which are somewhat like an apartment complex, but not really. They may have a room or a, a small area that's theirs, but they don't have a separate unit. In fact, where they're living is quite public. If the door is open, there's a lot of people who can see them. They have shared facilities as far as things like a kitchen goes. People don't have a, a private, a private closed-off unit which can 
be utilized for their own private needs, but instead their lives are quite public. Where I want us to read today is where Raskolnikov, he takes Marmoladov back home. And I just want you to imagine this for a moment. Russia in the 1800s, it was a well-developed culture, highly industrialized, but it was lacking a lot of the things that the rest of the industrialized world had. There's a lot of suffering and tension and class warfare going on in Russia, which of course leads up to the, the socialist and communist Marxist revolution that happens with people like Lenin. Just imagine this suffering, sort of bleak world. You've got this man Raskolnikov, he's taking Marmoladov home, and his wife, she has something in store for him. Let's begin reading. Because we're going to, to get to a place in this book with a very dangerous idea in the end. So it's all building up towards something. So just bear with me. Raskolnikov recognized Katerina Ivanova at once. And again, Katerina is Marmoladov's wife. She was rather tall, slim, and graceful woman. Terribly emaciated, with magnificent dark brown hair, with a hectic flush in her cheeks. She was pacing up and down in her little room, pressing her hands against her chest. Her lips were parched, and her breathing came in nervous, broken gas. Her eyes glittered as in a fever, and looked about with a harsh, immovable stare. For time purposes, I'm going to skip a little bit through the book, though I do encourage you to go out and, and download the book or get a hard copy of it. Again, it's Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Picking back up. She had not heard them and did not notice them coming in. She seemed to be lost in thought, hearing and seeing nothing. She walked toward the outer door to close it and uttered a sudden scream as seeing she seen her husband on his knees in the doorway. She cried out in a frenzy, He has come back, the criminal, the monster. And where is the money? What's in your pocket? Show me. And your clothes are all different. Where are your clothes? Where is the money? Speak. And she fell to searching him. Marmoladov submissively and obediently held up both arms to facilitate the search. Not a farthing was there. Where is the money, she cried. Mercy on us. Can he have drunk it all? There were twelve silver rubles left in the chest. And in a fury she seized him by the hair and dragged him into the room. Marmoladov seconded her efforts by meekly crawling along on his knees. He's drunk it. He's drunk it. All oh, the poor woman screamed. And his clothes are gone, and they, they are hungry. Wringing her hands, she pointed to the children. Oh, a cursed life. And you, are you not ashamed? What a stupid thing I've done, he thought to himself. Man grows used to everything. The scoundrel. And he sank into thought. And what if I am wrong, he cried suddenly after a moment's thought. What if man is not really a scoundrel, man in general, I mean, the whole race of mankind, that all the rest is prejudice, simply artificial terrors, and there are no barriers, and that's all as it should be. Ladies and gentlemen, that last statement which we just read is a very, very dangerous thought, because this whole text is a book about suffering and its assumptions about the origins of suffering. Assumptions are very important because they're the starting point on how we look at the world. If we look at the world and we say, well, there's suffering in my life, it comes from something outside, or they, pe some people take it to the extreme the other way, they say, well, everything's my fault, everything's about me. 
How people assume the origins of suffering is very, very important. Because we really should be critical thinkers and realize that in different situations, suffering may come from different things. I know a family who recently lost a child. Unmistakably, that is not the fault of this family. In fact, they did everything they could to, to save their child. But yet we look at other people. We even look at people like Marmoladoff in this text. And quite clearly, the suffering in their lives is a result of their own decisions. The suffering which is in their life is their fault. But Marmoladoff makes a really important statement at the end. He comes home, again, his wife has scolded him, she's grabbed him by the hair, she's drug him through the room, and he says, you know, this is all my fault, what a fool I've been. But then he pauses for a moment and says, you know, what if I'm wrong? What, what if man isn't really a scoundrel? You know, man in general, what if people aren't actually bad? What if my behaviors have no effect on, well, the effects? What if there are no effects as a result of my behaviors? There's no consequences. What if, what if all the suffering in the world is just prejudice? This, ladies and gentlemen, is a very, very dangerous fault. The idea that, well, suffering is just the result of prejudice. We look at the world around us and we see this idea still prevalent in our world today. This emerged in the 1800s Russia, and we find it being a very dangerous idea that if there's suffering in life, it's someone else's fault. It's not just a, a random occurrence. It's not just an illness or something which may happen upon us, but it's actually someone's fault. It's prejudice. It's someone actively trying to destroy you. This is a very dangerous thing. And the solution and the antidote to dangerous ideas isn't censorship. It's not branding them as hate speech, which is basically just a lazy tool our modern world has. It can't deal with, with the concept of evil. And again, it's not based off of the Judeo-Christian values which have really built the West. And it can't really comprehend evil. It wants to say there is no evil, so it has its new off-brand hollow structure which it says hate speech. Hate is the new evil in our secular culture. And... The problem with hate is it's not well-defined. We have a lot of people who say, well, if an idea is bad, if it's hate speech. It's not really free speech. They want to censor it and do away with it. This is a very destructive thing in and of itself because the antidote to bad ideas is, well, critical thinking. It's taking them to debate. It's looking at history and finding out a little bit more. This idea that all of suffering is a result of prejudice is a very, very dangerous thing. We find people in our modern world who are basically taught to be victims. But ladies and gentlemen, those of you listening in our audience, I know you are capable of much more than that. Because we must be people understanding we are created in the image of God, and if God is a, a reasonable and rational being, then we ourselves must also be reasonable and rational. When difficult ideas come into the world, we come to conquer them with debate, with critical thinking and reason and rationality, just as God brings order to the world in a very reasonable and rational way. Now, there's a lot of stuff which happens in the world, and that's sort of like darkness. It's the absence of light. It's the absence of, of God's intention. There are many places which suffering comes. Well, I think I've talked enough for now. I'm going to let Anthony give me some thoughts on all of this. Anthony, what do you think after hearing this bit out of Dostoevsky's novel? If all suffering does come from prejudice, then obviously that puts into question whether or not we are moral beings whether or not we are capable of doing anything about the suffering or, in fact, capable of causing suffering. Obviously, if all the suffering comes from prejudice, then we're not capable of causing suffering. And if we're not capable of causing suffering, we can't really be capable of alleviating it either. We have to be capable of both. 
Yeah, this really paints a, a worldview where people, they're just sort of prey laying at the, the victims of some predator. And again, your personal will only matters if you're someone who can become a predator yourself. Your, your personal will only matters if you have power coupled with it. Of course, one of the big things which comes out of the really the Marxist thinking is this whole idea of will to power. The only thing that, that matters much is, is the fact that you can couple your own will with power, and power is something they're always after. But in the church, we know that we are called to be transformed. Our minds are called to be transformed. Again, God is a reasonable and rational being. Therefore, we ourselves to be reasonable and rational in how we deal with the world, and we should constantly be transformed in the mind. If we, in fact, are moral beings and everything's not just prejudice, then we can actually do things in the world that make a difference. Anthony, you bring up a great point. Again, if, if it's all prejudice, you can't do anything to stop it. You may, it, it just all falls apart really quickly. And we must remember that we are, in fact, moral beings. Sometimes suffering does come from something outside. I know a family who just lost their daughter, and the father actually, being a moral being, he tried to, to save his daughter's life, his daughter's life, and was able to prolong um, her, her life. And that was a wonderful thing that somebody was able to use their, their will in that, that way. But then you find other times where people make bad decisions like Marmoladov and, well, the suffering in their life is caused by something. There are cases where suffering does come externally, cases where it comes internally. But the thing is, if we realize we're moral beings, then we're going to be able to do something about it. We're going to be able to react in those situations. We may not be able to make the world a perfect place, but by taking away the tool of understanding the role of, of the self and the, the role of the, the personal will, a lot of people are causing chaos. Just to wrap up this conversation, there are bad ideas in the world. The idea that all suffering comes from prejudice is a bad idea. The solution to this isn't to brand it as something like hate and say it must be censored and taken away, but the solution is to come to the table with debate, critical thinking, and an examination of history to see how things have played out. Well, I hope you enjoyed our program today. Again, this is podcast number 52. If you haven't checked out some of our latest work, we resurrected Marcion and we took an examination of him. Again, he's a real-life supervillain. Come check out our channel on YouTube and look at Marcion of Sinope, The Return. If you really enjoyed our content, please share our content. Just grab a link to it, share it with your, your friends, family, and those who you interact with. You can follow me on Twitter at jdylanproctor. You can download our, our free podcast. It's on SoundCloud, iTunes, CastBox, and we're now on iHeartRadio as well and a few other podcasting sites where the RSS feed trickles along. If you'd like to, to be a supporter of the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash kingdom of the logos, and there you can, well, become a patron of the, the podcast and, and help things continue here. Again, we really enjoyed having you with us. If you've got any questions or comments for me, feel free to send them. We're real live people in the flesh, and we, we'd love to chat with you. And on that, have a blessed day.